Welcome to the Highway Community Podcast, which is a space for us to explore the scriptures together as we continue on today in our series in the book of Numbers called A Table in the Wilderness. In this series, we've been following the nation of Israel as they've been hoofing it around the desert after God set them free from slavery in Egypt. They were on a journey to a new home. They were on a journey to a land that God had promised them and their ancestors long ago. And in this series, we've seen God be nothing but faithful to that promise. And we've seen the Israelites really struggle to believe it, really struggle to see God's presence, God's provision and care for them. And instead, we've seen them worship an idol. We've seen them grumble and complain. We've seen them say they'd be better off back in Egypt. Look, it's because the wilderness is a hard place to be. It's unfamiliar. It's lonely. It's desolate. It's uncomfortable. But we've been looking at how God uses that time for a purpose about how God uses the time in the wilderness to reveal himself to the Israelites so that they can really know him, so they can know God's character, so that they can know what it means and how to be God's covenant people. See, God wanted to partner with the Israelites to have them be reflections of his goodness, of his justice, of his love, so that the nations around them might see and come to know God too. And so God uses this wilderness time to make himself known so that his people might also make him known. But what we've tracked in numbers, what we've seen over and over again is Israel turn away. Israel complain. Israel attack and question God's character. Israel say, wouldn't it be better off if we were back in Egypt and in the midst of it? We've seen God respond with faithfulness, with patience, with his presence, even with answering their grumblings. And we've seen this over and over again, this consistency on both sides. We've seen God be faithful, God be patient, God reach out. And we've seen Israel consistently backslide into a default posture that questions God's character, wants to take direction back into their own hands, can't see the miracles right in front of them, let alone the ones they've experienced in the months or years prior. And that's important context to bring with us. Because this week and next week, we're going to be looking at passages that reflect God's anger and God's judgment in this moment. You know, some light topics, (laughs) but ones that are important for us to understand because they reveal to us more about who God is, what God's nature and character is like. We're going to look at Numbers chapter 14 today. And next week, Esther will take us through Numbers chapter 16. And we were talking a week or two ago, and both of these passages follow a similar pattern. There's an act of just ridiculous rebellion or accusation against God. Then God's anger is stirred, and there's an act of judgment against the people. In the middle, though, in both passages, is someone interceding on behalf of the Israelites, calling on God's mercy in the midst of God's justified anger. 
And so this week and next week's podcasts are in some ways tied together, and even though they cover different texts. And next week, Esther is going to focus in on what happens in the people while they're in the wilderness that lead them down this road, and perhaps what might cause us to do the same in this season or whenever we might find ourselves in the wilderness in the future. Now, today I want to talk about this person who stands in the gap, this person calling on God's mercy on behalf of a people who've gone totally wrong and also made his life totally miserable. I want us to consider what God might be calling out in us as we look at Moses here in Numbers 14 today. But before we do that, I want to spend some time talking about God's anger and setting some foundation for us as we consider it. Like passages like these can be uncomfortable. They can make us uneasy. They're easy to pass over on our way to ones, uh, truthfully, that make us feel better. But they teach us something about God and how God sees the world. So they're important to pay attention to. And they're important to hold in context. See, if we just pull them out of the broader narrative of Scripture and stack them on top of each other, we can create a portrait of God that's really volatile, even violent. And if we ignore their presence in the teachings of Jesus who himself did not mince words, who pronounced woe and judgment over cities that did not receive him, who turned over tables and drove people out of the temple with a whip. When we create, if we do that, then we create a false dichotomy of a God who's angry in the Old Testament and a God who is loving, gracious, compassionate in the New Testament. See, passages like this are important to pay attention to because they teach us something about who God is and how God sees the world. And to do that well, we have to hold them in the broader narrative of Scripture, which is why I wanted to recap where we've been in this series. These moments have been a long time coming. Something actually that tells us about God's character. All right. Let's do this. The first thing I wanted to just name is that I found in talking about this with a few folks that there's a real spectrum in the way that we interact with passages like this. Look, for some of us, these passages pose no problems at all. Uh, God's anger and judgment make total sense. But then there's also those of us that these passages are really difficult for. They're hard to reconcile with how we see God. They feel confusing. They seem scary. They raise questions for us. There's a spectrum in how we interact with passages like these. And if they raise questions for you, I want to encourage you to lean into those, to dig into them and not run from them, to ask God to speak to you in that place. And look, we'd love to walk through those with you as well, point you to resources that have been helpful for us, which I'm actually going to do here in a little bit, actually. And we turn, as we turn into these passages that deal with God's anger and God's judgment, there's three things I want us to keep in mind. The first is the phrase, just response. That as we look at the scriptures, God's anger is a just response. It's not a default aspect of God's character. Uh, 
God's not mentioned anywhere as being angry by nature, but he is angered in response to evil, to human suffering, to injustice, to his name, his character being attacked, and especially when it's being misrepresented. Look, and I'm really glad for this. Because what would it say about God's character if God was indifferent to those things? Indifferent, distant, removed from suffering, from injustice, from evil in the world. So God's anger is a just response to those things. But what is core to God's character is that God is slow to anger. We see God say himself in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. See, that's what God's anger helps us see about God's character, that God is long-suffering, that God is patient, that God is abounding in love and faithfulness, and so God is slow to anger. And we've seen this play out over this series and how God responds to Israel. God is not passive. God does not turn a blind eye to their wrongdoing. God is not indifferent. God provides correction and direction, but with patience, with measured restraint. God is long-suffering. God is slow to anger. We just have to watch the story of Israel and Numbers to see this played out. All right, God's anger is a just response. And what is core to God's character, what God's anger teaches us about what God is like, is that God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And this brings us to our second foundation piece, which is that God's love and God's anger are not exclusive of each other. And I think this is where a lot of us who have a hard time with passages like these get stuck. That God's love and God's anger are not exclusive of each other. And if you've ever been angry with someone because they made a choice that you know didn't reflect who they really are, or made a choice that you know in their better moments they wish they had back, or made a choice that created harm or pain or damage that you know they are better than, then you know that love and anger can live side by side. That anger can actually be motivated by, fueled by love. See, God's anger is God's love in action against sin in our lives and in our world. God's love and God's anger are not exclusive of each other. But I know many of us have experienced the opposite in other relationships, even ones that have been important to us. Moments when anger has overshadowed or overtaken, even brought love to an end. Maybe it was in a marriage. Maybe it was with a parent or a sibling or a child, or with a close friend. Many of us have experienced anger foreshadowing love's end. 
And it can be easy to then project that onto our future relationships, even on to God. And what I want to do is I want to start to unhook that a bit in our time together. And so, friend, if that's you, let me remind you that God's love and God's anger are not exclusive of each other. We see this time and time again in the scriptures that God's that God remains present with faithful love, even when God's people don't. God's anger is a just response to evil and injustice. And in it, we see God's nature. God's character is slow to anger and rich in love and faithfulness. We also see that God's anger and God's love are not exclusive of each other. And the third foundation piece I want us to consider this morning folds in God's judgment. That God's anger and God's judgment have a restorative element to them. When the scriptures record God's anger towards his covenant people, the people which, by the way, the scriptures record his anger towards most often, it's when they aren't living according to the covenant. They aren't living in the way that they were going to reflect God's goodness and nature and character into the world around them. And there's a part of God's anger and God's judgment that serve the purpose of bringing them back. See, with God, restoration is always the goal. And the way God exercises judgment most often in the scriptures on his people is by giving them over to what they want and by removing his protection from them and giving them over to someone else to rule, whether it's Babylon or Assyria or later Rome. God's judgment sounds a lot like, okay, if that's what you really want, you can have it. But listen, God is always right there the instant his people turn back. See, that's God's character. That's God's nature. See, with God, restoration is always the goal. And if you want to read more about how this plays out in the scriptures, I'd encourage you to read the book of Hosea. Or if you want to hear it from Jesus, read the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable, the father lets his son make the choice to leave to waste his inheritance on bad choices and wind up destitute, wishing he could eat the food of the pigs that he was feeding. So he let him go. He let him have what he wanted. But he was out of the road waiting for him to come home. See, God will let us choose. God lets his people choose. And there are consequences for those choices, but they can serve a restorative purpose to bring his people back into the relationship with God that they chose to leave so that they can faithfully represent God's heart in the world and what it means to be his people. All right. How are we doing? That's a lot of ground to cover really quickly. But this kind of foundation is so important to have. If you want to take a deeper dive into tracing the theme of God's anger through the scriptures, I can't recommend the current series from the Bible Project podcast enough. Starting with the episode from September 21st, the next four podcasts are all focused on fleshing this out. 
And if the topic of God's anger has been puzzling for you, and especially if it's been difficult, I strongly encourage you to check those out. And before we head into the passage today and look at the way Moses intercedes for the Israelites, I want to pause here just for a moment. We've talked about God's anger being a just response and that we see God's character revealed in the fact that he is slow to anger and rich in love. We've talked about God's love and God's anger coexisting, that God's anger doesn't mean an absence of his love. And we've talked about God's anger and God's judgment serving a restorative purpose to draw his people back into relationship and into living in a way that reflects God's goodness in the world, even if it means letting us choose our own way and suffering the consequences for a while. And before we move on, I want us to take a moment and ask what God might be saying to us right now and to have a moment or two just to stop and reflect a bit. Maybe uh, there's something God wants to say to us about the way that we've perceived him. Maybe there's something God wants to say to us about what's on his heart. Maybe God's talking to us about something in us or in the world that's not right. Maybe it's something about the way that we've experienced anger from others. Maybe it's something about the way we handle anger ourselves. I take a moment. And ask God what he's saying to you now. And we'll continue on in just a minute. Thank you. 
All right, Numbers chapter 14. Now remember, this chapter follows a pattern we talked about earlier. There's an act of rebellion or accusation against God. God's anger is stirred, and there's an act of judgment against the people. And in the midst of it, there's someone interceding on behalf of the people who are guilty. In this case, it's Moses. And to catch us back up in the narrative, the Israelites have made their way across the desert. And they're finally at the edge of the land that God had promised them. And Moses sent 12 spies, one from each tribe, into the land for 40 days to scout it out and bring back a report. And last week, we talked about that report, that 10 of the 12 spies said that it was a suicide mission, that there was no way they would be able to defeat the people living there. And that news spread through the whole Israelite camp like a sickness. And Numbers 14 picks up there. Read with me Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Well, uh, you may know what happens. Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who said, let's do it. God is with us. Tried to rally everyone. And the crowd talks about stoning them as well as Moses and Aaron to death. And then God's glory shows up in the tabernacle and calls out to Moses in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. God is slow to anger, but it's been nonstop with these people. Imagine These are the people who watched the plagues in Egypt, who walked through the Red Sea as God parted it. They've seen God's presence on the top of Mount Sinai. They've eaten manna and quail that were miraculously provided for them. They've lived with God's presence visibly in their midst as a cloud of smoke by day and pillar of fire by night hovering over the tabernacle. They've moved when the cloud moved. They've camped when the cloud sat down. And here they are on the edge of the very thing that God had promised them. And they say, if only we died in Egypt are out here. Why would God bring us here only to be killed? And so God says, okay, let's start over. But in verses 13 to 19, Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. He asks God to relent. He asks God to forgive them again. Moses says this in verse 19, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. 
And the chapter goes on to tell us that God forgives the people. But there's still consequence. The generation that came out won't make it into the promised land, but God will let their children in. God will walk with them. God will walk with Caleb and Joshua as they enter into the promised land. See, I I think this moment when Moses steps in to intercede, I think it's one of Moses's best moments. And I think it rings true for what it means to be a follower of Jesus today and to live in a way that's both surprising and compelling to the world around us. See, Moses grounded himself in love for others when it would have been so easy to just focus on concern for himself. Look, and he had every right to be concerned for himself. There was a mutiny plot in full swing that would not end well for him. But he intercedes for these people who actually made his life really hard since the time they had left Egypt. I'm just reminded so much. It sounds so much like what Jesus gets at when he said, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Like part of being God's people is taking on a posture of love and concern for everyone. Even those who are openly antagonistic towards you or something you value. It communicates something different than the way the rest of the world seems to work so often. Jesus says this a few sentences later in Matthew 5, verse 46. He says this, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? The call is to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And we see Moses do that here. And this year, it seems, has had a special way of deepening already existing divides, as well as creating a host of new ones. There's so much us versus them. There's so much weariness and so much frustration. Everyone wants, seems to want to trade insult for an insult. But what does it look like to live into what we see in 1 Peter 3, 9? Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. That's what Moses does in this passage. What would it look like if followers of Jesus around the world lived this way right now? What would it look like for us to live this way right now? To root ourselves in love for others, even those that are hard to love. And to pray for them, to intercede for them to call on God's mercy for them. What could God do through those prayers, both in them 
and in us. Look, we have an opportunity. The church has an opportunity to show a different way of being in the world right now. To ground ourselves in love for others. To advocate for God's mercy and redemption. Even for those who make life hard for us. Or as far as we can tell, might also be in opposition to what God is doing in the world. Look, because all of us have been there too. And in many ways, still are there too. It's by grace we've been saved not by anything we've done. And so in whatever wilderness we find ourselves in, let's do what Moses does. We can intercede for others to experience the same mercy, the same forgiveness that God, who is slow to anger and rich in love and faithfulness, has shown us. Would you pray with me? God, would we be a people who live in love like you do? Would you help us step out of the way the world seems to want to work right now? Trading insult for insult in a way that only further creates division and in a way that only further creates pain. Would we stop that cycle? Would we intercede for those around us? Even the ones who make life hard for us, even the ones we disagree with, even the ones who don't understand where we're coming from, even the ones who seem antagonistic towards us, even towards you. Would our posture towards them be love? Would we be known by that love? Would you be known through us in this moment? We pray these things in and for your name. Amen. Thank you for so much for joining us here on the podcast. We'll be back next week as we continue on into Numbers chapter 16.